Welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio, exploring the frontiers of spirituality, consciousness, the esoteric, and humanity's sacred relationship with a living earth. I'm your host, Nick Mather, and in this episode, I am joined by author John Opsopeus, Ph.D., for an in-depth conversation about his recent publication, The Secret Text of Hellenic Polytheism, a practical guide to the restored pagan religion of George Gamistos Plethon. Among many other topics, we discuss the Greek gods as platonic ideals, prayer as attunement, the Chaldean oracles, and theatry. Also, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts, or subscribe to the YouTube channel. Also, hit that like button and notification bell. Your support is truly appreciated. John Opsopius, PhD, is a university professor with more than 25 years of experience reading ancient Greek and Latin. He is author of The Secret Text of Hellenic Polytheism, a practical guide to the restored pagan religion of George Gamistos Plethon. Opsopeus has practiced magic and divination since the 1960s, and his fiction and nonfiction has been published in various magical and neo-pagan magazines. He designed the Pythagorean Tarot and wrote the Comprehensive Guide to the Pythagorean Tarot and the Oracles of Apollo. He frequently presents workshops on Hellenic magic and neo-paganism, Pythagorean theurgy, and spiritual practices, divination, and related topics. John, welcome to Rebel Spirit Radio. Oh, thank you very much. I'm, I'm very happy to do this, so it's, yeah. it's good to be on here. Yeah, well, I'm happy to speak with you, and congratulations on the publication of the Secret Text of Hellenic Polytheism. Has it been released yet, or it's coming up? Yes, it came out at the beginning of May. Okay. Um, I, I received my, my author copies, I, I think, in the first week of May. Okay, so, wonderful, okay. wonderful, wonderful. And people I, I, who have pre-ordered it have told me they've received their copies. Okay. All right, good. I, I found it to be a very interesting book. As I said to you before I hit record, I'm sure that I must have come across Plethon's name at some point, but I really didn't know anything about him. And I, I, I think that the work itself provides a really important puzzle piece that I think is missing in a lot of neo-pagan writings, specifically the history of pagan theology, because I think that what is often forgotten in the neo-pagan movements is the philosophers were pagans, <laughs> the Greek philosophers yep. were pagans. So I think it's, I think it's really important work. So I thought the best place to begin would be to ask you to tell the audience a little bit about Plethon. Who was he? Sure. So he was he was born about 1355. You know, we don't know exactly in Constantinople and seems to have received a good secular education. His family was wealthy comparatively. And he much of his biography, we only know from his enemies. So that means we always have to be a little bit skeptical about what what we we read. And so it seems that he got hooked up with a teacher, Eliseus, who's described again by his enemies as a polytheist Jew. And he uh, studied with this uh, man for many years. And at some point they left Byzantium and went to Ottoman Turkey. And he spent a number of years there also. 
and then came back to Constantinople and moved from there to Mistras in the Peloponnese in Greece. And it's, it's, I think, about five miles from the site of ancient Sparta. And he stayed there the rest of his life. And he lived to be quite old, nearly 100 years old. He died in 1452. So just to kind of put it in historical context, that was just really a year before the fall of uh, Constantinople to the, to the Ottomans. Mm. Uh, so he was there in the eastern half of the Roman Empire. Uh, they called themselves Romans, you know, and the eastern half of the Roman Empire in its last days, really. So he was a philosopher, and he was an advisor to the despot of Mistras, which was a very important role in the Byzantine Empire at that time. And he advised on many different things, on military tactics, on social organization, on history, astronomy, even very many different things. He was a, he was a philosopher, a very deeply um, educated in the Greek tradition, so especially the Platonic tradition. So he edited Plato's dialogues. He carefully investigated and annotated and edited many of the Neoplatonists as well, and, and so forth. So he was respe highly respected as a philosopher at, his, of the, at the time. And in fact, one of his followers wrote, Plato, Plotinus, Plethon. Basically, you know, these were the three great Greek philosophers through history. And so he was held in that company, I guess I'd say. So he's, he's kind of enters into history for two main things. One was in um, 1438 and 1439, the Western and Eastern branches of the Christian religion, uh, Christian church, the Roman Catholic and, and the Greek Orthodox, held a council of union to try and get over their doctrinal differences and reunite in some way. And partly there were political motives too, because the Eastern church wanted military support to help uh, defend themselves from the, the Turks. Mm -hmm. And this was part of the deal, you know, well, we'll send you some ships, you know, if we can, you know, sort of reunite religiously. And so he went along with the uh, Greek delegation from Mistras, and from all reports, he really didn't care that much about the, the actual issue of, of reunification. Now we figure that's what we, because he was a practicing pagan and he really you know, was not that interested in, in he thought that in a sense, he really seemed to think that the Christian religion was doomed in a sense. And so in that sense, it didn't matter. So anyway, he went originally to Ferrara and then in 1439, they moved the council to Florence. And so as these meetings were going on, he gave a series of lectures. And these lectures turned into a monograph that survives on the differences of Plato from Aristotle. Because Aristotle was much favored in the West, Plato was more favored in the East. And he wanted to show how Plato's philosophy was superior to Aristotle's. And in fact, that in the West, the, the philosophers tended to, to misinterpret uh, Plato. They didn't understand him. They mostly understood him through Aristotelian lenses. Uh, part of it was because very little of Plato was translated into Latin. And so they couldn't read Plato directly in most cases, or not very much of him. So he gave these lectures. And the, the, the story is, and scholars debate exactly how exactly what happened but the story is that Cosimo de Medici 
heard these lectures and became very excited about Platonism and, and said to himself, well, I'm going to found, and said to others presumably too, I'm going to found a Platonic Academy in Florence. And some 30 years later, he did that. He founded the, the Florentine Academy. He put the great Renaissance philosopher, Marsilio Ficino, he wasn't the great Renaissance philosopher then, he was, he was a, you know, a young scholar, put him in charge of this academy and told him to start translating Plato into Latin. And so um, this became really a fountainhead for Platonism in the West, in Italy and in uh, Western Europe. And so to some extent, this, this flourishing of Platonic ideas in art, in literature, in music, and uh, so forth can be traced to this Platonic Academy, which in a sense was inspired by Plethon. So in that sense, he has a very important role as sort of a linchpin between the Platonism in the East and Renaissance Platonism. So, and that's, you know, often when you see him in a history of philosophy or in a, in a, in a cultural history, that's often the role he plays because Ficino was very much influenced by his, his writings, translated some of them, um, you know, arguably was at least leaning towards paganism, skirting paganism, you know, in this Florentine Academy with many of the other people that, that frequented it. So, you know, there's that. So the other important thing, though, was that Plethon was suspected of being a pagan during his lifetime, but there was no tangible evidence. And this was important because you could be tortured and, and executed for practicing paganism at this time. And uh, but after he died, it was his book of laws is what it's called was discovered. This proved it because this was basically an outline for a theology, a whole religious practice, also a system of laws for organizing uh, a community. But it was very blatantly pagan. There was no no attempt to to hide it. And it was obviously a practical manual. I mean, it was not not some sort of imaginary theoretical thing. So the, the, this ultimately, through a series of steps, ended up in the hands of a high church official, George Scolarios, and um, he burnt a good hunk of it. And so we know some of this stuff because he reports it himself, because he says, well, this is terrible. You know, this was a great crime. And so he tells us that he spent four hours ripping pages out of the book and burning them. And he did this partly because Plethon was known as a very famous philosopher and at the time. And so he had to kind of justify how could he, you know, take the greatest book of this philosopher and, and burn it, you know. And so he basically said what he did was preserve enough of the book to prove the crime, essentially prove that he was a pagan. And I should say the word that, they, that was often used for pagan at this time was Hellene. Because anyone who showed too much of an interest in Hellenic philosophy or culture was kind of branded as a pagan. But so, so he burned, it's estimated about three-fifths of the book. But we have a table of contents for the entire book. So we know what is missing. We don't know how big it was because some of the chapters are very short, you know, a paragraph basically. Some of them go on for uh, 30 pages. You know, so it's very hard to, to estimate from the number of, of missing chapters exactly how much text is missing. But people have done it and they say maybe maybe two fifths survives. So this, it's interesting because I, 
in my, to my mind, this is the first example of a neo-pagan religion, because what he did is he didn't just try and resurrect ancient pagan practices. What he did is build on the Neoplatonic philosophy, which was the most sophisticated pagan theology in the West, and construct a system of, of worship based on ancient models, but not, you know, literally resurrecting them. So it was a reconstructionist type of approach to a, to a pagan religion, which he thought, you know, I don't know how realistic he thought it was, but he hoped, I think, that this would become the religion for, for, the, for a new world. There's a report, again, from one of his very hostile enemies that he said, um, you know, he once... Um, Place on one, uh, place on, I should say, once remarked to him that there, in the future there would be one world religion. And he said, Well, is that Christ's or Mohammed's? And he said, Neither, but one indistinguishable from paganism, yeah. from the religion of the Gentiles, is what he literally said. Now, whether he actually said that or not, we don't know, because again, this was a very hostile witness. And whether he meant that literally or, or what, we don't know that either. So <laughs> like I said, we, we have to be very skeptical about some of our sources about him. So we do have a number of his other writings as well. We have his commentaries on the Chaldean oracles, which are kind of informative. And we have, of course, his thing on Aristotle and Plato and letters and funeral orations and, you know, all sorts of stuff. But the one that's most important in terms of neo-paganism is this book of laws. And a very short, there's also a short summary, essentially a two-page summary as well that sort of gives the, the highlights of the theology. So that's it, you know, and most pagans or neo-pagans, if they know about them, it's because of this kind of this very sad story that here was this sort of complete neo-pagan Hellenic religion by somebody who really knew what he was talking about, but so much of it was burned. And um, right. But yeah. what survives is, in fact, very, very valuable because it was exactly the stuff that Scholarius thought was most damning, you know, and so it is some of the most useful stuff also for, for people that are interested in, in seeing or practicing the, the religion today. Right. And this was all before the invention of the printing press. Yes. <laughs> so I would imagine that if there were any copies of his work, it would have had to have been copied by hand. And we can always pray that, that at some point, maybe one will appear because wasn't it the case that there are like little bits from some of the, I guess, students or friends, colleagues that had preserved some segments of, of his work that could be drawn, uh, drawn upon. Yes, that's exactly right. And, and, you know, actually kind of amazingly enough, there was a, a whole ritual basically that was in one of the known manuscripts in the, in the British library and which had never been published before, I think it was 2016, hmm. you know? So again, it was the, the standard edition of the Greek text, which dates from, from the 19th century. They just left this part out, you know, wow. and it kind of boggles the mind why they did that, whether they just, you know, whether it was some sort of error, they flipped a few pages or what it was, but you know, it's right there in the manuscript with all of the rest. I've looked at, you know, the, 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 it's all digital now, which is very nice. I've looked at it and it's, uh, there's no obvious reason why they would have skipped it. It's and in a sense of, if they consider it embarrassing because it's blatantly pagan, it's not any more embarrassing than most of the rest of the stuff. 
So who knows why they did it? But I think it was in the 1960s, somebody went back and looked at it closely and said, wait a minute, this part's been missing. There are a couple other little bits too that have been left out, but, but this was a, is a rather important ritual. So that's in my book because it's the most complete version we, we have now. But, but yeah, there isn't much in terms of manuscripts surviving and, and some of them are in very bad, not bad condition in the sense that they're worm-eaten or something like that, but, but they were badly copied, I guess you would say. And so they're, they're kind of, we're waiting for a new edition of the Greek texts. And I, I believe that is in progress, but I don't know when that's going to come out. And, and I finally decided I couldn't wait for it. So <laughs> I'm doing the best I can with what we've got. But generally speaking, it's, 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 uh, it makes sense. It's clear enough. Um, but yeah, there's always the chance, you know, because these things get bound together in these, in the Vatican library, the monastery libraries and stuff like this. And, you know, you, you think, you know, what's in this codex and then you find halfway through, there's something else there that, so we, we hope, you know, we do yeah. hope. Yeah. Um, yeah. It would be a great find because I think that based on what you're saying, you know, especially with, um, Cosmo Medici, hearing him uh, speak and later founding the Platonic Academy. I think it's fair to say that Plethone was a source for the Renaissance. I, I agree. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I certainly agree. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and he made ahead. pagan practices right. more acceptable, I think, where, right. you know, for so for sort of free thinking people, in, in an environment where where maybe the they couldn't get in too much trouble, you know, if they were discreet, then you know they could kind of flirt with this stuff. Like Ficino, we know he was doing all sorts of rituals and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, his what we might call magical practices and spiritual practices, which were really the same thing for him mm -hmm. in this Florentine Academy, and others were too. So Pico della Mirandola, you know, very very inclusive sort of idea of spirituality. I think that was in part legitimated and, and permitted by the example of Plethon. Um, yeah. I want to get into the theology and some of the influences on Plethon. But I think that the place that we probably ought to begin is with these Neoplatonists. Mm -hmm. and neoplatonism and i was wondering if you could maybe say a bit about the neoplatonists since they are so important to plethon's work right so the first thing is probably to to just make a remark or two about the the name neoplatonist mm -hmm. that's a, a a late academic term 18th century i believe is is when it was coined and it was coined as a derogatory term it was, you know, like, oh, these late Platonists, they had, you know, they were becoming kind of mystical and irrational. And this was sort of the, the last degeneration of Platonic philosophy. So that was really the, the, the sense in which the, the term was coined. They called themselves Platonists. You know, as far as they were concerned, they were working in the continuing tradition of Platonic philosophy. Or they might even call themselves Pythagoreans sometimes, mm -hmm. too. Uh, taking 
Platonic philosophy as being a continuation of Pythagorean philosophy. So scholars typically, when they do want to divide up the Platonic tradition into these pieces, Neoplatonism typically begins with uh, Plotinus, because he was trained in Greek Alexandria, or Greek Alexandria, I'll say, and does seem to have changed the direction of Platonic philosophy from a more intellectual sort of orientation to more of an acknowledgement of, with, of, of spiritual practices, contemplative practices of, of various sorts. And so it does seem to be a fairly distinct division in, in the history of the philosophy. And before that, is typically classified as middle Platonism. So that's, you know, in the, the, the first centuries CE and the, the last couple centuries BCE. Um, and in many respects, Platon's philosophy is somewhat on, on that, that dividing line. He, he very much is building on Plotinus, but it has a little bit of a middle Platonic flavor about it too. So, but then, you know, so the Platonism continued to develop after Plotinus and sort of resurrect, resurrected Platonic Academy in Athens continued. There was a lot of infusion of ideas from Alexandria, but also from the Middle East. And we get some other important figures who Plethon specifically cites as sources. Porphyry, who was the editor of Plotinus's works and also his biographer, came from Syria and seems to have sort of brought an infusion of ideas from there as well, and then later Proclus. So I'm not mentioning them all, but I, I should say Plethon gives a golden chain of philosophers, and there's 28 of them in his golden chain. And a lot of the ones in the first group of lawgivers, that includes Pythagoras, for example, but other legendary lawgivers, um, who were generally a lawgiver was a spiritual leader in the ancient world, you know, because they were essentially bringing down the laws from the deities and telling people how they should run their societies, how they should organize their society. Pythagoras is the classic example of that. And so he has a group of lawgivers and he has a group of ancient sages, which includes, for instance, the Brahmins of India. So so-called barbarian wisdom and barbarian of course just meaning non-greek speak speaker and he has the seven sages of ancient greece and he has eight platonic philosophers including parmenides and plato of course timaeus i don't remember the law off the top of my head and these seem to be real sources you know certainly he plato's dialogues parmenides uh, poem and and some of these others uh, probably works by pseudo Timaeus, but that were accepted as, as, as genuine. And then the neo, so-called Neoplatonic philosophers. So Plotinus, Porphyry, uh, Iamblichus, and Proclus is missing for some unknown reason. But it does seem that Plethon got most of his philosophy from the ones he names. Uh, you know, pretty standard textbook Platonism. I, I should probably also say in this context that, that especially Iamblichus and Proclus are known for developing the practices of theurgy. Now, the practices of theurgy go way back, but these are practices for interacting directly with deities, invoking deities, and having a conversation with them. 
And so this was Plotinus had spiritual practices that seemed to have been more contemplative. It was, but it was a kind of theurgy. Porphyry seemed to follow Plotinus in that regard. With Iamblichus, we have practices that look more like magic, you know, preparing incenses, preparing using particular gemstones, using magic words, all of these sorts of things that, that are familiar practices that we know of from, from, from magical practices at the time, but are here being used in a religious context as a way of connecting with a particular deity. Uh, and of course, the whole theoretical background to this, which Iamblichus uh, uh, is, is the best source on, on that, how this is all supposed to work. And so that's much better developed in these later Platonists, late antique uh, Platonists, such as Iamblichus such as and Proclus, uh, Damascius, um, for example. Okay. Yeah. I, I, last, I should say, the last really pagan theology we have in the West you know, in, into the sixth century here. And by, you know, this is the, the, this is when in 529 Justinian closed all of the pagan schools. And so this is really when uh, it became impossible to teach pagan theology anymore. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I, I do want to go back to the theurgy, but I have a couple of questions first. One is, the in regards to Plato and the dialogues, I know that much of the Greek literature was kind of went missing <laughs> in the West for a long time. So how much access did Plethon actually have to the writings of Plato? Was he getting most of his information through the Neoplatonists or did he have access had they been rediscovered by the West at this point? Because I always thought that it wasn't until the fall of Constantinople that you got this flush of, you know, like the Aristotelian writings and the Platonic dialogues coming back into the West. Well, that's, that's exactly true. But the thing, the important difference is Plethon wasn't from the West. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. He was okay. born in Constantinople yes. okay. and, and the, you know, that literature was never lost in the East, okay. you know, All that, right. that um, there was a, there's a continuous right. tradition of Platonic philosophy in uh, Byzantium going back to classical antiquity. Now, you know, it was, there was always an uneasy relationship between the Orthodox Church and this Platonic philosophy. It was okay to study the ancient Greek authors if you said, well, I want to improve my language, or I want to improve my grammar, you know, that was okay. Studying the philosophy was iffy, you know, and in fact, many of the people that wrote about platonic philosophy or ancient greek philosophy in general always had to be very careful to add of course i don't believe this stuff you know i'm just right, describing right, right, what right. these crazy people believed you know yeah. and there's a whole history of of various philosophers and teachers getting into or theologians too getting into trouble because you know they they were skirting a little bit too close to this this stuff but it was but it was there you know it was mm -hmm. part of the culture it right. was part of the heritage and so it was preserved and um Plethon came with us with this when he came to the West before the that sort of mass emigration. So I don't know. I think he had a pretty complete collection of 
Plato's dialogues. I, I don't recall a, a statement or a list that I've actually seen of what he had. One of the sad things is um, we don't know what happened to his library. He apparently had a very extensive library. Some of it went to Cardinal Bessarion in Rome and was one of his students, a non-pagan student, as far as we know. So, you know, but that his library is preserved and very well cataloged and, and there's stuff in Pletho's handwriting in it and so forth. But, you know, in terms of the rest of his library, we don't know what happened to it. It may have been destroyed because um, a few years after he died, Mistros did fall to the Turks, you know, and it may have been destroyed with a lot of the other stuff. So, but it seems like he had a pretty, pretty complete set of Plato's dialogues and also a number of other Neoplatonic works. And like I said, he, he edited them, you know, he wasn't above changing Plato. If he thought Plato said something wrong in his dialogues, he would go ahead and change it. (laughs) You know, so because something else I should probably mention is the Neoplatonists viewed Plato's dialogues almost like sacred scripture. Now they didn't, they would say inspired perhaps, you know, and they had this idea that each of his dialogues was devoted to one single topic and in a sense was trying to present a doctrine, um, some Platonic doctrine. So of course, many of Plato's dialogues don't reach any conclusion. There's a lot of back and forth and discussion and argument, and then everyone goes home, you know, and they didn't read it that way. They said, well, there's something here that, that each one of these dialogues is supposed to uh, be teaching us. And so they had a whole curriculum. Iamblichus is, is um, outlined this, where exactly the order in which you were supposed to study these dialogues. And again, this is a spiritual process. It's taking a person through a series of spiritual steps. It was the intention, you know, raising them up in a sense, spiritually, step by step in order to uh, to reach a certain enlightened or even divinized state. So they, they, they treated the dialogues with great respect. And of course, they were masters at allegorical interpretation, you know, about, well, what was Plato really saying here? You know, or Homer or other, you know, of the respected dialogue, Chaldean oracles also, you know, clearly there was some deeper meaning here. And so they would, that was a lot of what they did. And the commentaries, which do survive, some of them survive, by Proclus and Damascius uh, and some of the others are, you know, going through Plato's dialogues line by line, expanding on what Plato was presumably saying in these different places. Now, again, modern scholars will tend to turn their nose up at this because they'll say, well, you know, they're just missing the point of what Plato was trying to do in these dialogues. But nevertheless, it's extremely revealing about what the Neoplatonists were trying to do. So that, in that sense, they're, they're very valuable. But, you know, we can't take them as, by modern terms, legitimate commentaries on Plato's dialogues. Right. Yeah, it seems like we're in this situation where, on one hand, you've got the scholarship that wants to remove any of the spiritual aspects of it, but then in the attempted reconstruction of Hellenic paganism, often the philosophy has been left out. And so mm-hmm. it's, and that's why I really enjoyed your work because it was like, no, you have to have both of them together, right? Uh, because that's what it would have been. 
that's what it would have been. So, I, and, I, and I think it's important, of course, to realize that philosophy in the ancient world was quite different from the, the modern discipline of philosophy. Right. You know, Pierre Adot uh, has, has familiarized us with the phrase, philosophy is a way of life. And that's really what the ancient philosophers were doing. They were trying to teach you a way of living better. And it was very much of an oral teaching small group work, individual work, you know, more like what we picture uh, an Eastern guru with a, with a group of students. So, you know, the doctrine that was taught was a way of modifying your thinking. But again, that was a spiritual action. It was, it was operating on your soul to transform your soul in some progressive way. And of course, that's what would constitute a good teacher would be knowing when the student was ready to move on to the next stage or what particular work they might be that was blocking their advancement. And um, so, of course, if that's what you're doing, the intellectual argument is part of it. You know, that's part of, of the way you conceptualize what's going on, but it's also an emotional and a non-rational process as well. So in particular, in theurgy and in the contemplative practices of the, especially the Neoplatonists, it's, it's trying to, it's trying to uh, engineer, I'll say, a spiritual experience. And that spiritual experience is supposed to be transformative. And so the words that might be spoken are part of that process, part of the mechanism that, that's trying to, to encourage that, that transformation to take place, that, that mental experience to take place. And so you have to understand the, the doctrines as being a kind of verbal therapy, you know, like we talk about talk therapy in psychology or in psychotherapy, but it's, a, but it's a kind of similar sort of process that the words are part of the transformation. Modern cognitive behavioral therapy, which of course is based on on ancient Stoicism. It's again, a similar sort of idea, but it's a very cognitive sort of process. Here we have the cognitive part, which is the doctrines that are taught, but then there's also a non or less cognitive part uh, in terms of appeals to emotions, visualization, even somatic processes that again are trying to lead a person to have, to, 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 to grasp a spiritual reality which cannot be adequately conveyed in words. And that's what the Neoplatonists were doing. And so in terms of understanding these sorts of spiritual practices and what they were trying to do in a psychological sense or in a spiritual sense, uh, the Neoplatonists are, are really important because they had studied this. I mean, they had psychological theories. They had cosmological theories, you know, which are not so bad. And they, they had this technology, again, which has a long history going back a millennium but or more, but they had this, these uh, practices that had been passed down and been, had been honed over the years, and we'd really like to understand them. You know? So this is why I think a newer generation of scholars that understands better what ancient philosophy was about, you know, it's not like Anglo-American analytical philosophy. That's not what the ancients were trying to do. And so if we understand what they were trying to do and what the purpose was of their philosophy, then this later Platonism is much more important because it's making explicit these practices that were handed down often orally for, 
for so many centuries. And they're trying to explain it. You know, they're trying to say, well, why does this stuff work? You know, they're giving explanations of it that we can then evaluate and see if, you know, yeah. um, if they make sense, you know, yeah. if, uh, they're empirical statements in a sense. And, and we can then check them out and see if in fact they, they work. Yeah. So, you know, when you understand that ancient philosophy was not separate really from either religion or spiritual practice, then it's less surprising perhaps that, mm. that there's this aspect to it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a fan of the work of Peter Kingsley. Oh, yeah. And uh, that's one of the things that he's done is especially with the pre-Socratics, you know, like Parmenides mm. and Empedocles and a few others, you know, he talks about them going into the caves and mm -hmm. this process of incubation. And mm -hmm. we can read Parmenides, you know, what we have of him as almost like a shamanic journey uh, that yeah. he's describing. Yeah. Well, and this shows the bias, right? I mean, right. Kingsley is, is very explicit about this. It's probably coming out of the Enlightenment, but mm -hmm. people uh, point to Parmenides as the founder of Western logic, you know, and you read his poem and it does to sort of, if you come at it cold, it's like, well, it's a trip, you know, and, right. you know, most likely a shamanic journey of some sort, but it's like, you know, this is not a, a logic text. Right, 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 right. <laughs> you wonder how did anyone ever see it that way? Well, it's because, you know, again, a largely post enlightenment view that, well, what distinguishes Western philosophy from the rest of the world, it's rational. And so we have to trace back this history of rationality through Aristotle and Plato, and then back into the pre-Socratics. And because Parmenides talked about being, well, okay, that, that, that seems like, like the foundations of logic. But it's a very distorted uh, perspective, I think, on all of this stuff. And, and, and one that I think most ancient philosophers would not even recognize. Yeah. So Kingsley has done a great job in terms of uh, pointing out how even some, in some sense, Plato over-intellectualizes some of this, mm. some of this material. And in a sense, then the Neoplatonists are getting back more to the sort of the central tradition that, that if, like if you trace it back through the Pythagoreans, Plato can look a little bit like a diversion to a, about, well, let's talk about this a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to just doing it. Right, right. Well, even with Plato, there I've always held that there's a mystical aspect to Plato. And I, and I do want to dig a little bit deeper into the rites and the rituals because I found them very interesting because I'm not sure I can articulate this as well as I would like, but it... it the idea that it was a contemplative practice really shown through. But I think that before we get to that, maybe it would be best to kind of go into, in general, this theology that comes out of Plotinus and that Plethone is working with, because it, I think that a lot of folks, and I could be incorrect here, but I think a lot of the people who are drawn to the Greek paganism, you know, they're thinking of the Greek gods out of like Greek myth, mm -hmm. right? But that's not necessarily what Pithon <laughs> was doing. The gods are very different than I think how many people probably think about them because they are, as you write, platonic ideas. 
their archetypes. So I thought that maybe we can try to unpack this a little bit. <laughs> and I, I know this is a big job. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, you know, it starts with Plato because Plato um, in several places basically criticizes the poets, by which he means Homer and Hesiod and the, the dramatists for telling lies about the gods, you know, and many ancient philosophers had trouble with these, with these myths. And, you know, Kronos castrates his father, Uranos. Uh, there's incest all over the place. Lots of other, well, as, as, as somebody said, all of the things which, which are considered the worst possible behavior among humans uh, are attributed to the gods. So that's a problem for anyone trying to have a more than a sort of a naive understanding of the gods. Well, of course, there was a there was a long tradition of allegorical interpretation, and that was that was well known. So Plato in the Republic says in his ideal society, there's he's going to kick all of the poets out, and for this reason that they give wrong ideas about the gods, and especially for say philosophically uneducated people they might mislead people about what is good behavior, among other things. So Plethon is really following up on that. He's, and, and many of the Neoplatonists did as well. They, there was, a, there was a, again, there was among them, there's a, there's a very active process of allegorizing Homer, especially, and some of, some of the other uh, myths as well. So Plethon is basically, uh, you know, taking Plato as, as, as his word here. And he says quite explicitly at the beginning, he says, well, you know, we, we, we basically reject all of these myths because, first of all, they give the wrong idea about the gods. And second of all, people may be misled by them. And he is, he is designing a religion that is apparently supposed to be a popular religion. You know, it's not just for philosophers or for, for spiritual specialists of some sort. This is supposed to be a generally accessible religion. And so, you know, he doesn't want to mislead people. He's especially upset, apparently, by all of the incest in traditional mythology. And so he has a fairly lengthy section about how th that would be impossible for gods to even have any sort of incestuous relationship. So he is following the, the, the really the uh, platonic line that the gods are platonic ideas, which means that there's some sort of ideas or forms that are outside of space and time, they're eternal. And I always find the easiest way to explain that is the way they often did it. They're like numbers, you know, mm -hmm. the number three just exists. It didn't come to be at some point in time. It's not going to cease to exist at some point in time. It doesn't change. It's just three. And relationships among numbers like one plus two equals three, those are also eternal. And so the basic idea is that the, that the, the gods, or at least the high gods, are platonic ideas in this sense. Again, there's, they're, they're outside of space. Three isn't somewhere, you know, and so it's not in heaven or under the earth or anywhere else. So th that's basically the idea of the gods is that there's some sort of platonic forms that have always existed. And it, it, it's not even correct to say that because that's temporalizing them. So for Plethon, 
well, let me go back again to, to the Platonists. The Plato, uh, you know, discussed the idea of whether there's a highest form. There was for him, and he's a little vague about it, understandably. It's sometimes called the one. It's sometimes called the form of the good, which of course is a, is a very loaded term. Um, Plotinus very much taught contemplative practices to essentially ascend uh, and in some way unite oneself with the one to experience that unity. Now, the problem with all of this comes with the one as the ultimate principle of unity, the ultimate principle by which anything is something, is above duality. Duality is and is not. You know, so what this means is that you really can't say anything about the one. So anything we say about it is just a metaphor or kind of pointing you towards it, but, but, but we can't really comprehensively say anything about it because it's beyond that ability to verbalize. So in, in ancient Greek, it's areton. It's unspeakable, but that unspeakable means both literally it cannot be put into words, but that was also the term used for the mysteries, you know, not permitted to speak about them. They were unsayable in that sense. And so hen was the uh, ineffable or unspeakable one, which was this ultimate principle. So that becomes especially explicit with Plotinus and all of the other later Platonists adopted in some form. Now, you know, again, this has Pythagorean roots and there's all sorts of discussions about, you know, exactly what this thing is, which, you know, in a sense, you can't say what it is. But this is also really sort of the beginning of uh, apophatic theology, where you can't say what God is, all you can say is what God is not, you know, and you kind of have to try and, and circumnavigate the deity that way. So, um, so for Plethon, this this highest principle, which he calls auto n, the one itself, among other things, is essentially the Platinian and Platonic one. And he says, I'm going to call it Zeus, because that's traditionally the name we associate with the highest god, the chief of the gods, if you like. Uh, but again, you can see he's a little bit different. He, he's not the guy that throws thunderbolts and has sex with, with every mortal and immortal. He's this highest principle, the ultimate principle of the good, among other things, which Plethon is quite explicit about, and is in that sense also the creator of all of the other gods. But again, this is creator in an ontological sense, because all of these gods exist outside of time. So you can't say they were created at some point in time, like in traditional mythology. So it's their, it's their cause, their ontological cause. So he says, okay, the, the chief god, I'm gonna call Zeus. And he goes, he has a little discussion. He says, well, you know, these gods, which are kind of abstract principles, you know, like uh, the form of difference and the form of identity are, you know, he calls Artemis and Apollo, you know? So he says, you know, why, you know, why should we do this? He says, well, these are the traditional names of the gods, you know, and so we can use them. He says they've been sullied by these myths, but he says we can, we can sort of move beyond that, forget that, and, and continue to move these names sanctioned by tradition. And he says that's a lot easier than describing these gods by abstract terms. That would be confusing for people. So he says it's, it's, it's uh, better to lean on the tradition using the names, but, you know, you also have to kind of set aside all those myths 
which he says mostly are lies anyway, and understand them in the way these gods appear in his theology. So he has the highest rank of these gods are the super celestial gods, and in a sense, Zeus is above them. So the super celestial gods are all platonic forms. So they're outside of space and time. And they're all caused by, by Zeus. So there's some theological reasons for that that we can talk about if you want. These super celestial gods then create a second tier of gods, the celestial gods. And these are the gods of the heavens. So again, Plethon is in a pre-Copernican universe. He thinks the planets go around the earth or the only planets he knows about are the seven visible moving bodies. As far as he knows, the earth is at the center of the universe. So these moving bodies signify or symbolize or are images of the celestial gods, which are in time and space. You can look up there and see them, right? But nevertheless are everlasting, you know, because again, he's, he's, he's uh, in a universe that has no beginning and no end. So this is, a, again, one of the things that the Christians really, really disagreed with because they wanted a definite creation in time. And then, of course, some sort of apocalypse too. So a, sort of a beginning and end to ordinary time. Plethon, along with most pagans, said, no, the universe is everlasting. And, and again, because the causes are everlasting. So the planets, from his perspective, are, are everlasting, but they're in time. And then there's a lower rank of beings, which he calls the terrestrial daimons. Now, again, this, this sort of provocative word, daimon, in ancient Greek was a word really for any sort of divine being, but especially in the later periods was more used for lower, lesser beings. Ones that were thought of as messengers, angeloi or angels was one class of daimons but lesser beings that would carry out the, the orders, so to speak, of the, of the gods. And were also our means of communicating with the gods as well. So the, the lower rank of divine beings was the, the, the daimons, um, and they were primarily on earth, so under the heavens. And the lowest rank of immortal souls were human beings. So we were in the same sort of lineage of the, the Zeus, super celestial gods, celestial gods, diamonds, and um, humans. And, and heroes were in there somewhere too. It's not exactly clear, but they seem to have been kind of like diamonds. So this is actually, and this is pretty typical Neoplatonic or even middle Platonic stuff. I would say this whole cosmology is, right. is, is not at all unusual, but this was sort of his distillation of this whole tradition. Proclus, for example, had a much more complicated theology. That's why Plethons is almost more middle Platonic than, than that. And that's probably why Proclus is not in his golden chain. So, so that's the weird thing about it is, yes, these, these gods are, in a sense, philosophical principles that do very important and one might say more fundamental things in the universe than the traditional gods. Although there is gods of animal life and gods of plant life and, and so forth, gods of the elements. And when he addresses them in his prayers, they're anthropomorphized, which I think is psychologically very astute. You know, it's, it's hard to relate to a principle like the form of identity, you know. Um, 
But Apollo, with his, with his traditional attributes of creating harmony and unity and so forth, that's easier to, to relate to. So he retains some of, the, some of that in his, in his prayers and uh, his hymns. But it all has to be consistent with the philosophical principle, which he, he's saying that's the real God. You know, that's what the philosophers have taught us and showed us is that the actual gods are these more abstract sort of philosophical principles. Yeah. It, um, that's the theology. Right, right, right. It's a, it's a emanation theology, right. Where uh, kind of like what we see, you know, one of the things that came to mind is the Kabbalistic tradition Mm -hmm. that the way that Plethon was thinking about Zeus uh, as the ineffable one in mm-hmm. Jewish Kabbalah, it's uh, Einsof, which is mm-hmm. above and beyond. And, but then everything is this uh, emanation. And you actually have a, a chart in the book mm-hmm. of the gods that reminded me quite a bit of the Kabbalistic tree of life. I mean, there was yes, a lot absolutely. more than the 10 Sephiro and the paths, but just yeah. looking at it, I'm like, that's like the tree of life. <laughs> yeah, uh, yes, that's right. So, you know, that, that's it's an interesting question, of course. And, you know, the, again, sort of hostile biography or, or biographical information we have about, about Plethon is that he studied for many years, I think like a decade, under this Eliseus or Elisha, who was described as a polytheist Jew. Well, you know, that you could sort of you know, a, a Jew following the Kabbalistic tradition, you can sort of describe that way. The, the Sephirot are kind of like deities. They're emanations yeah. of, of God. And so, yes, that's very similar to Pletho. Now, for whatever reasons, he does not allude directly or apparently indirectly to that Jewish tradition at all. I think that's partly because he was trying to have as close to a sort of purely Hellenic tradition as, as he could. But, you know, again, his position is that these gods are universal, right? right? And again, they're philosophical principles, causes, you know, ontological causes of various kinds in these relationships. And in that sense, you could put the names of any pantheon on it or, or, or you know, uh, certainly Kabbalistic as, as well. But yeah, it is very much of an emanationist sort of view. And he, in fact, said that the number of gods was very specific, and the order in which they were caused was also very specific. So, and that's the way he presents them out. But he makes it very clear that this is not just an arbitrary order for convenience that he's presenting them this way, that this is the ontological chain of causation, so to speak. So it's, it is very much that kind of view. And that's, you know, again, maybe that inspired Pico della Mirandola down the line to, you know, incorporate Kabbalistic ideas in, into his system. But I think that's another possible, possible uh, avenue of influence. Yeah. So when someone is, or I should say Plethone, in <laughs> uh, these, like the, ritual the and there is a whole cycle of rituals that's pretty complex and we don't have to go into that but i think hopefully it's fair to say that it's based on the cycles of the moon and the year and the sun but there are these rituals that involve like incantations and prayers and hymns and the question that i have is 
what is the purpose of these? And I think I have the answer, but I wanted to ask you, because it doesn't seem like it's a petitioning to a divinity in the sense of, you know, oh Lord, send me a, you know, Mercedes Benz, uh, but, uh, but something else. And so I was wondering if you could maybe speak to the purpose of the ritual. Right. So, and I think this is also in a sense, pretty typically platonic. So again, it says Zeus is the, the good, mm-hmm. is essentially identical to the good. He also says that because of that, there's an there's a, a absolutely deterministic fate in the universe emanating from, from Zeus. And so, and this again, this is pretty typical Neoplatonic. You know, it's like, well, you know, if you pray to the gods to change what's going to happen, you know, if, if, the, if the gods are essentially agents of the good and they've decided what the good is, what providence is, you know, so if you're telling them to change it, you're either saying they weren't good, you know, they didn't decide what was best, or you're asking them to change from what's the best to what's worse. And he said either one of those is essentially atheistic, you know, and, and again, this was not, he was not the first one to say this. This is a, this is a pretty typical platonic position. If you have this idea of the gods are, are good in some sense, then it leads to at least the, the potential of this idea of a deterministic fate. And then, you know, this sort of, I don't know, you know, pray, praying, praying for what is not the best, you know, which, right. which selfishly praying for what is not the best. So, so a petitionary prayer of that sort would not be something that, that most Platonists would, would approve of, and they would say it's futile anyway. Now, there's a whole discussion of Platon about how this deterministic fate doesn't contradict uh, free will. And of course, you know, that's been a, been a problem for religions for, for millennia. But he's got a, you know, basically he presents a compatibilist kind of version of, of free will, which I think actually makes a lot of sense. But leaving that aside, so what do the prayers do? Well, you know, the, the, the goal of prayer uh, in, for many Platonists is to make us more godlike. Mm. And so it's to connect with some particular divine energy. And in, in his case, often many divine energies at one time to try and bring our the upper parts of our soul, the immortal part of our soul, closer in alignment with the gods, sometimes to understand why things are what they are, or to better work in conformity with divine providence, and and to just be better people. And so his prayers, this comes more into into theurgy. So in, in theurgy, also has this goal of essentially attuning the individual soul to a particular divine energy. Now, in the more magical sorts of theurgical operations, again, this might use incense and magic words and and you know stones and all plants and all of this other stuff. Well, why? Well, because these particular substances or objects or words or symbols are in a particular divine lineage. And again, this is something the philosophers spend time trying to figure out. So the idea is, again, this is an emanationist kind of view that in, in emanating from each particular divinity are things all the way down into material reality. You know, so the classic example is, of course, the rooster is the bird of Apollo. Okay, 
So if you believe that, you know, and it was a traditional thing that rooster is the, is a, is the bird of Apollo, then you would use symbols of roosters or parts of roosters as a way of connecting with Apollo's divine energy. The way I like to view this is it's like tuning a radio, you know, or maybe now typing in a URL, you know, your, your, or, or one of those things where you type in your, your name and your birthday and where you live and it, you know, takes you to your information. So what you're doing is tuning into particular aspects of that deity, but you're tuning your mind, like tuning a radio to that particular divine energy. So uh, the more operational types of theurgy would again, be using a variety of material things as well as less material things to tune into that energy. Well, what Plethon's doing is the less operational way of doing it, which probably more like Porphyry and Plotinus, where you might use material things to tune into those lower ranks of divinities, which are in the material world. But for the higher ranks of things that are in a less material realm or a non-material realm, you want to use non-material symbols. These are called symbolar synthemata, symbols and tokens. They could be words. So in other words, a prayer citing particular attributes of a deity is a way of tuning your mind, your, you the practitioner's mind into a particular divine energy. And, and in a sense, then acquiring some of that, allowing yourself to also become an image or an embodiment of that divine energy. And so, you know, Platon has these very long invocations. He calls them addresses. And they go on for pages, you know, uh, take you maybe 15 minutes to recite one of these things or more sometimes. But what they're doing is it's, it's a programming sort of process. It's taking you through these different divinities and what their aspects are in an in, intent to essentially reprogram your mind and tune it into a particular into particular divine energies. Now, his addresses usually address more than one deity, whereas a more traditional, say, Gamblichian theurgy typically would be addressed to one deity at a time. So you'd use all of the symbols for that one deity. But uh, so Plethons is a little bit more generalist, but I think the same thing is going on. You know, and if you look at Neoplatonic theories of prayer, they talk about different degrees of prayer. And the lowest one would use material offerings, things like incense and, of course, maybe even a, an animal sacrifice in, in ancient times, and also various sorts of other materials. But then the higher kinds become progressively more abstract. You know, you think of a magician standing on some sort of magic circle with various symbols in it. Well, those symbols would, could be symbols of the god that you're trying to invoke. But then also these various sorts of words and chants that are tuned to a particular divinity. Again, all in to tune the individual's brain to that particular divine energy. Now, the most immaterial sort of thing is just sort of pure contemplation. You know, not even contemplating something in your mind, but more of a sort of Zen-like meditation. And that's the kind of thing that some of the Neoplatonists recommended. You know, it's like, okay, you know, this verbal stuff will get you up to a certain level, namely the level of the Platonic forms, which are the sort of things that we can attach words to, but it's not going to get you above that. For that, you have to do a, a more apophatic type process where you, where you kind of withdraw all of that naming and, and, and cognitive 
process. Right. Would there be a kind of ecstatic union unification or unify? I don't know how to say this. Um, just a, an ecstatic experience of union with the absolute or the one. Well, certainly in the other Neoplatonists, I mean, certainly in Plotinus and 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 um, Jamblichus and Proclus, certainly that that would be the experience that one would hope for. If I remember correctly, Porphyry says that in the dozen years or so he spent with Plotinus, Plotinus experienced that four times. Wow. So this was something that one might hope to experience generally late in life. And uh, if you're lucky, once or more. <laughs> so this is not, not I think, uh, expected to be an everyday experience. Right, so right. it was really a quite transcendent experience of, of union with the yeah. one. And, and again, ultimately un, indescribable with words right, as well. Right, right. It's all of the standard sort of tropes that we have in, in this stuff. You know, if you witness someone doing it, their face would glow and other miraculous things might happen in their presence and stuff like that. So we find all of this stuff in the literature. I mean, you know, there's this story that Iamblichus, you know, his students came to him and said, well, you know, we hear that you levitate when you meditate. Can we, can we see that? And he said, no, 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 no. that's rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, then, then, then he proceeds to demonstrate some other semi-miraculous thing. So, you know, this is the standard stuff we find in these, in these traditions, I think. And in that sense, right. it's very familiar territory. You know, again, if we compare it to Christian mysticism, or uh, Eastern mysticism and so forth. So I think this is what they were after, you know, that they had this hierarchical view of the, of the gods and you had to work your way up. And that was March, uh, that was a combination of both your own spiritual attainment, so to speak. Your, your, your soul had to be purified and all of the Neoplatonists had some version that your soul had a vehicle an uh, etheric body or a subtle body that it was attached to that was then attached to your to your physical body and uh your your etheric vehicle kind of went away went with your soul when your soul left your body and so it had to be purified and so these various practices were to purify the etheric body as well so it would be a so it'd be a a, a um suitable vehicle for carrying you up into the divine realms and ultimately to, to union with the one itself. This is, again, described by Amblichus. Uh, the Chaldean oracles were interpreted to give directions on how to do this uh, and to describe it. And, but yes. Okay, all right. One would hope, yeah. <laughs> but not yeah. necessarily expect to have that, in, that ultimate ineffable experience. Right. And when I asked you the question, what I had in mind was, a footnote actually i had two things in mind one was a footnote that you wrote in the in the book that the purpose of the rituals and prayers was not to change the gods but to change us and in connection with that was the practice of the virtues that the uh, practice of the virtues was to allow us to have that kind of experience is that correct Yes, that's correct. It's because that's, again, that's purifying the soul, you know, and, and again, it's, it's, it's purifying it at several different levels, like self-control. I mean, that's mm -hmm. just, 
you know, strictly embodied self-control, controlling your, your appetites for, for food, sex, drink, what have you. But, the, but that also then progresses up through the cardinal virtues, of course. Mm -hmm. And this was also quite common amongst the Neoplatonists. They would take those four cardinal virtues and they would interpret them at successively higher levels, what they meant. So at the lowest level, it was just kind of being a good person, you know, a reasonable, reasonable person, social person, you know, fit, fit for society, you might say. Uh, but then at a higher level, they were all interpreted, for instance, fortitude was not just being reasonably courageous in everyday life. It was being courageous in the separation of your soul from your body. Hmm. You know, so it was the courage to essentially detach from your body, either at death, of course, or, or uh, even in, a, in these rituals. And so there was a whole scale, and depending on which one you're talking about, of maybe five different levels at which the same four cardinal virtues are reinterpreted in successively higher ways that are more and more remote from, the, from everyday life and also more connected with the spirit. So that again would be something where a teacher would say, okay, you know, uh, yeah, you think fortitude is this. Okay, yeah, it is that. But now you're ready for a new version of fortitude to acquire. And this is how we're going to do it. And so the, the student would then practice these virtues at a higher level. And then somewhere down the road, they'd had some experiences. They demonstrated that they had acquired these virtues. And then they said, okay, now you're ready for the next stage. So essentially degrees of initiation uh, corresponding to the reinterpretation of the other virtues. And this, again, is why the doctrines are also reinterpreted at these different levels, levels that are appropriate for the student uh, for their level of development. So they're not physics textbooks and they're not even philosophy textbooks in many cases. What they are is verbal therapy to help a person understand where they are in the process now and how to, how to move on. Mm. So now I, I have to say, again, what we have in Pleathon's book, the surviving parts is more of a popular religion. And, and what we have in his book of, on virtues, which, uh, which I also translate, or I don't translate, excuse me, but I, but I, uh, but I present, uh, is more the lowest level of virtues. It's like, this is what it is to be a good person in, in this society. The, if he taught the higher levels of theurgy, first of all, he had to be very careful about it because that right. was the sort of thing that would get you cruelly tortured and killed. He, maybe he didn't do it. He may have thought that, that the philosophical level at which he's operating it was just fine for, for himself and for everyone else. Now, I do include, as you know, a chapter on theurgy because I think it is important. But again, Plathone, we have no evidence that he practiced theurgy. All right. Yeah. I think you make a good case for the possibility of his practice of theurgy. I, I just want to say one more thing about the virtues is I know that in Aristotle, and I think the same for the Stoics, the purpose of being virtuous is to achieve eudaimonia, mm -hmm. right? Which traditionally had always been translated as happiness. And now more philosophers are saying, no, 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 it's flourishing. Mm -hmm. uh, but I always like to go to the, 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 that, the actual word itself, which is a good daemon. 
Yeah. And I'm thinking in terms of now, you know, is there something that we didn't have or an understanding that we weren't having with what Aristotle actually meant with a good daemon in light of what you're presenting here? Uh, well, that's a good question. Part of it. Yeah. 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 And I don't, I, I don't know if, 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 if Aristotle was, was, I mean, I think he certainly was, you know, drawing a distinction with hedone, pleasure, okay. you know, okay. which, you know, it's so he, the, this, the idea of flourishing is it goes beyond just simple pleasure. Right. Pleasure is part of that, but, but, but it goes beyond that. So, you know, I don't know about Aristotle, you know, he yeah. was, kind of a down-to-earth guy <laughs> yeah 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 for sure and so while he was using the word that you know philosophers had traditionally used um i don't know that he was necessarily focusing on right. on that other aspect plato i think definitely was yeah because you know he has this whole story of our guardian diamond mm. you know that goes with us and socrates had his daimonion that he would consult with. There was an idea that our soul was itself a diamond, you know, of some sort, you know. And in some of the Neoplatonists, or even Platonists, um, is the idea that that our guardian diamond is sort of one rank above us, Hmm. okay? And so, like, you know, there's this story that I think it was an Egyptian priest was in town and I forget who, I, don't, I may have been poor for he came to Plotinus and said, oh, this Egyptian priest in town and he can invoke your diamond so you can see your diamond and let's go do that. And Plotinus went along with him and this Egyptian priest, um, I think he sacrificed a rooster or something and whatever, did his ritual and this being appeared. And he said, oh, <laughs> you've got a God as your guardian diamond. <laughs> so the implication is that Plotinus was already at the rank of most of our guardian diamonds. Okay. And so he had an even higher rank being, being a God as his guardian, you know, and that's kind of the way it goes. And through successive lifetime with luck, you know, you would kind of move up the ranks, you know, presumably spiritual leaders uh, like Plotinus would be the sort of ones that would have a higher being as their soul, a higher diamond as their soul, and, and an even higher being than as their guardian. And Socrates would presumably be another example, Pythagoras would be another example, that already had advanced to the point where they had a higher being, a uh, higher order of, of diamond as their as their own soul. So it's it's an interesting concept. And of course, it's, you know, it reminds you of bodhisattvas in the East as well, because these people are, or beings, mm-hmm. uh, are, are reincarnating, you know, and then, then um, doing the work of the gods on earth as well. Right, right. Yeah, um, I always like to translate the eudaimonia as a good spiritedness. Yeah, yeah, a good spirit or, or um, yeah, a good spirit is, is, yeah. is a good translation, yeah. I think. Yeah, um, and well, literally, it's it's a, it's a having a good spirit. Yeah, um, good yeah, yeah. The last thing I'll mention in regards to the this practice of virtues and whatnot is it, it actually kind of reminded me a bit of Aquinas, where mm-hmm. the end goal isn't that eudaimonia, but it's the uh, beatific vision. Mm-hmm. You know, and that seems to be a little bit more online with what Plethon and the Neoplatonists were getting at. 
I think so. Yeah, I think so. And of course, there's this kind of fairly direct connection from Proclus to Dionysius, the Sudi, pseudo Ariapagite, <laughs> that, you know, some people have speculated it was Proclus pretending to be a Christian. More likely, it was somebody who either studied with Proclus or at least was, was very well versed in his writings. And, you know, just Christianized a lot of this Neoplatonism, including these, these hierarchies and everything else. You know, and they just, you know, rebranded the gods as, as angels and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, and I, that is at least one fairly direct path from the last Neoplatonists straight into Christianity and into Christian mysticism. And, I, you know, I don't... Okay. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, obviously, Platonism has had an important influence in Christianity. Yeah. Some people say that the Christians took some of the wrong parts of it. And <laughs> when I say this, I, of course, I mean, especially in, in the Eastern, in the Orthodox traditions, but also in, in the West. Yeah. But, you know, Neoplatonism was not so dualistic as we often think of it. Because, because of this sort of emanationist kind of right. view that that good went down all the way to the bottom, you know? Yeah. And as you know, even Plato has this kind of negative view of evil. Evil is just right. the absence of the good. It hasn't right. got that far out yet. So while, you know, there's definitely this notion of ascent and sort of getting away from material things towards these more abstract sort of platonic forms, as a way of ascent, there's always a notion of coming back to of bringing this back into embodiment and being mm-hmm. a better person during this incarnation on earth. And I think to some extent, and, and Pletone actually argued about some of this stuff, you know, that, that, that Christianity took some of the more dualistic tone out of the ancient philosophy and, and left behind some of the the more embodied aspects of it mm-hmm. and, and you see this even in theurgy you know that material stuff plants animals stones the, they have the divine in them and they can be used to 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 call down or to to tune into the to the divine right. and so it's very explicit in, in especially the neoplatonists with the theurgical operations well it's a very different worldview than the Christian worldview of this being a fallen world. And also in connection with that, the entire idea of original sin, Mm -hmm. that we're all born corrupt rather than this idea that we all participate in the good. Right, right. And Plethon has a very specific role he describes for human beings, because I mentioned we're the lowest rank of immortal beings. And so he obviously has a notion of reincarnation, as most of the Platonists did. But our bodies are mortal, obviously, you know. And so he says, we are the ones that complete the universe by joining its immortal part to its mortal part. We're essentially the linchpin that binds together these two opposed parts of the universe. And so we have a very essential function to sort of do that process. And that's why we have to kind of recirculate back and forth between the immortal realm and the mortal realm is to keep that that bond everlasting. And so in that sense, we have a very dignified role in in the whole cosmological system. We were essential to, to this whole cosmological system. 
so yeah very very no no notion there of original sin i think at, at all well and it's also i think very helpful for environmental thinking <laughs> to recognize that it's good and i know that neoplatonic philosophy kind of found its way into some of the thinkers that have been used to kind of formulate environmental ethics even even in people that you would not expect it like Jonathan Edwards and you know Emerson you shouldn't be surprised with Emerson but uh yeah it all seems to be there and one has to wonder you know what would the world have been like if uh Pletheon was right that we would have ended up you know with a different religion uh, new well religion. you know that that's that's very interesting and and you you i do <laughs> among other people wonder a lot about that and, and it's also interesting as you know you, you point to the transcendentalists that they were very much influenced not maybe by plethon directly but certainly by the neoplatonists all the thomas taylor translations they they all read those those often first and sometimes still the only english translations of some of the neoplatonists and, you know, I think they had the same idea that this could be a new spirituality for the world that would, that would embrace nature, embrace the divinity of nature and celebrate it and honor it. And that didn't happen either, you know, so. Um, that's yet. A, it didn't happen yet. <laughs> or it didn't happen yet. We, we certainly, we certainly can hope. And this is why, actually, one thing I like, I should mention about Pletone's philosophy amongst all of the Neoplatonists, is in a sense, it, it, he is more rational, you know, in the, in, than many of the Neoplatonists, in the sense that he says, here's a philosophical system. I give you arguments for it. You don't have to believe me. I'm not citing any sacred scriptures. You know, if, if you study this stuff, this is the way it has to be. And, you know, he was not an opponent of science in any sense. You know, he, his whole calendar is based on scientific measurement. He did astronomical measurements. He improved the techniques that were available at the time. And in that sense, uh, if you have a kind of platonic or Pythagorean view of the universe, which, of course, many scientists are turning towards now, I mean, Science has always been very Pythagorean, but especially modern science is extremely so. And, you know, you, you find more serious scientists now saying, well, maybe, maybe it is all platonic forms, you know, and certainly quantum mechanics looks that way. And so, you know, in that sense, you know, leaving aside details of pre-Copernican astronomy and stuff like that, it is actually quite compatible with modern science. So I think one could build a neoplatonic theology on on plethones that you know would be quite acceptable to to people that are scientifically well informed i would say you know and 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 can sort of not have trouble integrating scientific understanding with the religion so I, and you know i i will i won't even say that's a hope of mine but but certainly it's it's uh it's an attractive uh, fantasy, if not. Yeah. Well, I, I do think that there is something new emerging in terms of spirituality. And there's this, I, I, I don't know that it's the language that people are using. I think right now the language is more along the lines of like an eco-spirituality. 
But I've often wondered, I'm like, but isn't that just some kind of new paganism? Mm -hmm. And we certainly saw this sort of rebirth of paganism back in, you know, the 1940s, 1950s. But I I, I think a, a lot of people are kind of suspicious of that. And what I liked about your work was that it gave that philosophical foundation that mm -hmm. I think is missing in this neo-paganism that has been dominant for the past, I guess, 75 years now. Well, um, yes, and I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, no. And, I, you know, when I first began practicing as a neo-pagan, I, I was, you know, interested in the Greek pantheon, and I did a lot of research on how ancient Greek pagans worshipped, you know, and, and, and did that, still do, do much of that. But it was, it was strictly, there was no philosophy, really, or no serious philosophy behind it. And I think that that is what the Platonists, broadly speaking, have done in the West, is provide a solid theology for pagan philosophy. And they were really the only ones who did it. I mean, certainly other philosophers, other Greek philosophers in particular, discussed theological issues. But in terms of a long-term systematic development, it's the, it's the Neoplatonists. It was sort of the, the philosophy, if you like, that survived well into the Christian era. Maybe, you know, other peoples around the Mediterranean had a, a equivalently sophisticated theology, and certainly the Neoplatonists got ideas from them and borrowed doctrines and, and borrowed teachers from them. But kind of what has survived is the Neoplatonic tradition. Yeah. So in the, at least in, in what we can broadly consider the Western tradition, I think the Neoplatonic provides sort of the best pagan theology we've got. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and um, yeah, and it's, you know, one of my concerns has always been with appropriation, you know, mm -hmm. because I see so much of what has been going on has been appropriation. And I've personally been always on the lookout for something within Western culture mm -hmm. that can be drawn upon. And this is where it's been leading me is, you know, going back to sort of trying to uncover what actually was our pagan roots. And I think the other aspect of this is this reclamation of philosophy as it had been practiced. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 No, I agree. Absolutely. Yeah. This is, this is for us that have been raised in a, in a Western culture, this is our indigenous spirituality. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And um, it, it yeah, it, it worries me too. Also, appropriating things from right. from other cultures, and and you know, I, I I can feel good about yeah following this tradition that it's that it's that it's my own in a sense. Yeah, well, you know, as soon as you understand that there was a shamanic aspect, perhaps to <laughs> the, the pre-Socratic philosophers, oh, absolutely. you know, that yeah. opens it up. You don't you don't have to worry <laughs> about you know you know just don't go around with all the feathers and everything. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, they had uh, sweat lodges, you yeah. know, very ancient yeah. sweat lodges, you know, yeah. in 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 um, uh, Thrace and places like that. So you know, yeah. yeah the, well, you know, of course, that's the other thing too. Is underneath all these traditions, there there is a psychological and spiritual technology, right. or science, really, mm -hmm. that is common to all of us. And right. so, um, that's why we do find these parallels in sure. many cases sure. as as well. Yeah. Um, 
you know, sh people would have discovered shamanism even if they didn't yeah, learn it sure. from real shamans. Yeah. Right, right, <laughs> right. Shaman. Yeah, well, and the gods as presented in your work, you know, they're, they're archetypes. Mm -hmm. So there is that depth psychological aspect to all of this as well. Um, right. Just another right. way of working with it. I, I know that we're running out of time, but I have one question that I wanted to ask you. And hopefully I'm not out of line. You may not be able to answer this. I'm not sure. I, I suspect you can. But I want to go all the way back to Plethone's golden chain. Mm -hmm. And maybe I was missing it, but I noticed someone missing mm -hmm. that it kind of surprised me. And maybe it's there and I just skipped over it. But the person that I noticed that was missing was Hermes Trismegistos. Oh, that's right. You know, and because he's certainly in later golden chains, Ficino yeah. and so forth. Um, well, you know, there's no evidence that Plethone as far as I know, again, I have to be a little bit careful here. I may have forgotten something, but 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 I'm not aware of any evidence that he was knew of or was significantly influenced by mm. Hermes Trismegistus. Right. Maybe, you know, again, he's operating basically in a Platonic tradition. Right. Which right. now the Chaldean oracles, you might say, well, what about that? Well, they were in a Platonic tradition. I mean, they're 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 they're, they're kind of bizarre compared yeah. to other stuff in the platonic can, can you but say they were accepted by all the neoplatonists yeah can you say um a word or two about what the chaldean oracles were yes so they were uh, a series of oracle verses that we would probably nowadays say they were channeled by two people both named julian one was a father and one was a son the father was called julian the chaldean and the son was called Julian the Theurgist. And these are second century, probably. Some say they were contemporary with Marcus Aurelius. And so the son, so they were theurgists, you know, and in fact, they are the ones who coined the term theurgy. Right. Okay. <laughs> so they were doing theurgy by definition, and they channeled these oracles, which are now known as the Chaldean oracles. Unfortunately, they they survive only in fragments. But the 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 Platonists, the Neoplatonists, considered them very important. They're very obscure, as you might expect, and because they quoted them, that's why we have them at all. You know, because any complete text was was lost a long time ago. Supposedly, the 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 Julians communicated directly with Plato's soul. You know also with various deities. And so these were very highly respected amongst the Platonists. One of them said, if all of the uh, writings were lost, except for the Timaeus and the Chaldean oracles, you'd be satisfied. You know, So they were in that sense considered more important than Plato's dialogues even. Yeah. So the Neoplatonists wrote a lot interpreting these, these oracles. Porphyry wrote a whole lost, uh, mostly lost work on philosophy from oracles. So again, this comes back to the religion versus philosophy thing. Porphyry thought oracles were a good source of philosophy, of philosophical insights. So, so anyway, there's the, 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 these, these, these oracles were passed on. They were collected by, some of the remaining ones were collected by Michael Psellos in the 12th century. Uh, Plethone had Psellos's version 
and he produced his own edition of 36 oracles. There were only a few more than that known at the time and with his own interpretations. And so they're very valuable in terms of revealing his philosophy and his theology as well. They survive in, in a number of copies. He called them the magical oracles because in his great chain, golden chain, the Magi, uh, the, the, the followers of Zoroaster were important figures. And he thought these oracles came from Zoroaster. So he called them the magical oracles. Logoi magikoi, uh, uh, because magic means of the magi. You know, that's what I call them in the book because that's what he called them. But now they're generally called the Chaldean oracles. And I think it was Ficino that coined that term. The Platonists mostly just called them oracles. And we have, you know, we've over the years, people have collected more of them from quotations here and there. But it's still a very, it's a fragmentary mess. It's a bunch of really sort of isolated. I think the longest is 12 lines and a lot of them are just one word, you know, that we believe to be out of one of these oracles. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, I just had to ask about Hermes Trismegistus because also knowing yeah. the role that Cosmo Medici and Ficino played because, you know, <laughs> Ficino was, did the first translation of them. And, yeah. you know, the story is that, you know, uh, Medici had him translating Plato but then when the Corpus Hermeticum was discovered, he's like, stop what you're doing and do this before I die. Yeah, um, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, you know, so when I was looking at that, that golden chain, it just seemed to me, it just kind of jumped out that he wasn't there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, is a, it is a notable absence. I mean, right. that and Proclus are the two notable yeah, absences, yeah. perhaps. And I don't think anybody's really sure. Right why he left the bat them out the, the best or the simplest explanation in the case of hermes is he just was unaware of those texts right, right. but he may have considered them too well i don't know yeah, yeah. you know I, I it's hard to say yeah. he may have considered them um not philosophical enough i guess oh, you know okay. yeah. um yeah they tend to be rather visionary yeah yeah and he did in the stuff he actually uses mm -hmm. he sticks more to the philosopher now he right. again like i said he cites the brahmins mm -hmm. and the magi and all of these other people right. where he didn't have access to anything so they're really just you know names mm -hmm. and i guess some of them are legendary too right so in terms of what he actually had they're all pretty much philosophers right you know right right um, okay. all right yeah. all right that's fair enough interesting um, question you know and yeah. and i <laughs> yeah it just leaped out at me and i'm like you know where's he at why is he not there all right so i know that we are nearly out of time so let me ask you my two final questions are always what's next for you what do you have coming up and then question number two is where can people go to find out more about you and your work okay so i'm um continuing to do work on on Plethon. now that the book's kind of out of the way i can i can concentrate on some other things i'm interested in translating some of his other stuff that mm. that has not been translated it's amazingly how little has been translated into english and that's kind of why i had to do the book of laws myself i waited and waited and waited and and nobody else had done it so i'm still working with Plethon, of course i've got a, a paper i've submitted which is kind of doing what we talked about is a, a viewing his philosophy from a 21st century perspective, how much holds up, what might have to be changed, 
to sort of make it, you know, still philosophy, a believable philosophy. So I'm doing that. I'm, I'm um, continuing to work on theurgy. I'm working with some other folks that are practical theurgists, and we're putting together a book. So I'm doing a chapter on, on basically Neoplatonic theurgy for that book. And that's more traditional theurgy than, than what more of the Proclus uh, or Proclin type of theurgy. And, you know, looking at projects along those lines, I, you know, as you may know, I'm very interested in how some of this stuff plays in a modern context. That includes also with a Jungian psychology. Jungian active imagination has many similarities, but also some striking differences with Neoplatonic theurgy. I'm actually delivering a paper on that next week. I'm, I'm con continuing to investigate theurgy and especially how theurgy works in the modern world, which I really think is a valuable spiritual practice uh, for the modern world. And so I'm trying to, to sort of continue to explore that. I have a website, opsopaus.com. That's O-P-S-O-P-A-U-S.com. And that has information about the book. It has a link to a resource page, has a spreadsheet to help you do Plethon's calendar if you want to do that, <laughs> uh, which could be a little complicated. Yeah, spreadsheet Greek would be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Has the Greek text and some other stuff if you want to look more at some of the original source material. And it also has information about some, some of my other books uh, as well, even going back to that Pythagorean tarot. So that's the best place to find information about any, you know, lectures I'm giving or courses I'm teaching or email me, you know, if you want questions or, or stuff like that, it's the best, best way probably. Okay. Wonderful. I will put a, excuse me, I will put a link to your website in the show notes and video description. And I'll also put a link for uh, the book for people. So I'll do a link for the publisher. And then usually I provide a link from bookshop.org. Oh, okay, good. So, yeah, that's yeah. great. All right. Well, John, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you. And I feel like I have a much better understanding of Plethone now. Again, I think it's a very valuable work. It's part of a part of our intellectual history that needed to be exposed and provided to a much larger audience. So I thank you for your work. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. Okay. I've enjoyed right. it. Okay. Well, thank you. And that's a wrap on episode 42 of Rebel Spirit Radio. Thank you so much for listening or watching if you are part of my YouTube audience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to give it a positive rating on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. It only takes a second and your five-star ratings really do help. If you have a minute to spare, consider posting a short but positive review. And please consider subscribing. If you are watching this on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and subscribe to the channel. Make sure you hit that notification bell so you will be informed when I upload new content. I've been trying as best as I can to upload uh, new episodes every week, and I would like to continue doing so. I'm also working on creating some uh, educational videos on topics concerning spirituality, the history of religion, and the religious uh, response to the climate crisis. I'm also hoping to cover a conference or two uh, coming up, um, but all of that extra content takes a lot of time and work. 
Uh, if you would like to support me in creating free and credible material on YouTube and continuing with this podcast, please consider making a one-time donation via PayPal. You can find a link for that in the video description or show notes. Your support makes this podcast possible. I'm Nick Mather, and you've been listening to Rebel Spirit Radio. Until next time, may you be in peace, may you flourish in all possible ways, and may you continue to nurture your rebel spirit.